If the church is negotiable to our understanding of what it means to be Christian, then our understanding of what it means to be Christian is wrong. If the church is negotiable in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, then our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is wrong. God's plan from the beginning was to bring together a people who would connect with him. This is what we see with Israel. He gathers together the nation of Israel and their relationship with him is as a people. We see this as the early church is beginning to grow and expand through the book of Acts. And we see this in the writings of the letters of the New Testament and particularly in Paul's writing. And perhaps no more clearer than in Ephesians. Now I think there's something in the back of our minds that's saying, well, okay, yeah, but what about... And what I see through the pages of Scripture and the history of the church is that God is trying to help us understand that there really is no, yeah, but what about? The church is non-negotiable to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul is trying to help us understand this in a variety of ways in this letter that we call Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3, he lays out a theological argument for the church. And he gives us the theories of of what it means to be the church. And now as chapter 4 unfolds, he's starting to talk about the practicalities of that. And he begins with chapter 4 by reminding us that he is a prisoner for us. He's saying to his readers, I'm in prison for you. I talked about this in the third chapter, but I want to remind you again. I'm imprisoned for you. And I want you to remember that so maybe it will motivate you to what I believe God wants to do in your lives. And that is to live a worthy life of the calling that you've been had, that God has given you in Christ Jesus. Live up to that worthy calling in Christ Jesus. And this calling is about what it means to be the church, what it means to be God's family. And this family of God is about unity. When you look at verses 2 and 3, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity is the mark of the church that is pointed in the right direction. And we tend to think that The thing that tells us that the church is in the right direction is related to evangelism or discipleship or missions or worship. And all of those things are important. They're vitally important to the life of the church. But in one way or another, all of them are a means to moving us to unity. To being the people of God that he created us to be together. I think one of our struggles with unity is that we have this idea that unity implies sameness, but it doesn't. In verse 16, Paul says, talks about Christ who joins together the whole body and he holds every supporting ligament together and it grows and it builds us up up in love as each part does its work. Everyone's doing a variety of things. Everyone's bringing their distinctiveness to the body and out of that, 
comes unity. Unity is not, because, not trying to establish, make all of us the same, all of us clones, but rather is taking all of the things that are different about us and joining them together as one. The Western Evangelical Church, I think, has bought into the idea that in order to be successful, you have to focus your attention on one group of people. You have to know your target audience, and that's what you focus on, and everybody else is going to have to find their own way, do their own thing. And in some ways, we have bought into that because it seems to work. That's how most of the big churches in this country, that's their plan. But I'm not sure that's exactly what God has in mind. We attempt to eliminate diversity because we believe that diversity hinders growth. But actually, it's the exact opposite. Now, sure, we all like to be around people who see things the way we do, who like the things that we like. People who agree with us, who who see life and, and the church the way we do, which is, of course, the right way, right? Right? I mean, we're right, so as long as everybody's on board with us, we're good. We don't want the hassle of dealing with people who might see things differently from us. People who might disagree with us or challenge us or who might throw a wrench into what we view as the perfect design for the church. And I understand that. We, we like people who think the way we do. But God has more for us than just thinking the way we think. He wants to, make, he wants to do bigger and greater things. I think unity is so vital to Paul because he has caught a glimpse of what it's going to be like in eternity. Paul understands that all of God's people in heaven are unified around one idea and that's worshiping God. And there won't be anything, there won't be anything that will distract our attention in heaven from worshiping God. Everything will be about worshiping God. But we'll still be different people. John's very clear in his revelation that he sees in heaven people from every tribe, language, nation, tongue. But our differences, instead of dividing us, will actually create the symphony of worship that God intends from the very beginning. We aren't going to fight about our differences in heaven because our differences will be absorbed in our worship of one Lord. And if what we're doing now as we come together in worship and as we become, as we are the church on this earth, if what we're doing now is preparing us for what we're going to experience then, then if we aren't interested in unity now, what makes us think we'll be interested then? If unity is not important to us now, what will make us think it will be important to us then? And as C.S. Lewis describes so brilliantly in The Great Divorce, if we aren't interested in the purposes of heaven now, what would make us think that we'll want to be interested in them then? Actually, unity is just really just following the model of the Trinity. Verses 5 and 6, Paul says, there's one body, one spirit, Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Unity is really the Godhead. 
And unity is not something that we create. It's just something we acknowledge. Unity is the natural design of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. It's what naturally comes when people are in the right place together. So how do we know if unity is truly being formed among us? How do we discern that? How can we tell? Paul says, by the way we interact with each other. By how we connect with each other. Verses 12 and 13, he's talking about spiritual gifts that have been given. And he says that the reason these are given is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I don't think we usually connect spiritual maturity with unity. We tend to think of spiritual maturity as... I know a lot of the scriptures. Or I practice the spiritual disciplines on a regular basis. Or I've come far enough that I don't really need other people much anymore. I can pretty much stand on my own. And we view that as maturity. Scripture says that's a wrong interpretation. It's actually the, the mindset of our culture. And it's a warped view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because the scriptures tell us that the more mature we become, the more we realize how much we need Christ and how much we need each other. And Paul is particularly interested in unity that's seen through a couple of ways. Two types of interactions. And one of them is spiritual gifts. I don't think we often connect spiritual gifts and unity. Because we tend to think of spiritual gifts as being primarily about us as opposed to about others. We tend to ask questions like, I mean, you know, subtly, we don't actually say these out loud usually, but how little of myself do I have to invest? How minimal of a sacrifice do I have to make? And the questions that are coming to my mind is, what if we were, what if we were less interested in debating some minuscule point of theology and more interested in just obeying the theology we already know? What if we were less interested in how others can use their gifts for us and far more interested in how we can use our gifts for others? Because that kind of mindset is an indication of maturity. Now, if we reverse that, what's the favorite word of a two-year-old? Mine, mine, mine. You know, we are all susceptible to being spiritual two-year-olds. And the way to combat that tendency is to serve others. Sacrifice what we want for what we know others need so that mine and me sort of disappear from our church vocabulary. It's not that we aren't fed or nurtured by the church. We've just come to realize that the most profound way to do that is... To not necessarily always be looking for what I want or to be pampered or to be the center of attention or to have the mindset of get, 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 but rather to have the mindset of give, give, give. To serve and to sacrifice and to give of ourselves, particularly to the weak and the most vulnerable among us. This is the soil in which unity and maturity are nurtured. But Paul is also concerned about connecting unity with 
how we treat each other. And specifically, he says, he talks about speaking the truth in love. Now, that implies that we're focused on the truth. And we would all say, well, of course we are. We're, we're not here to tell lies. But the issue is, is it our truth or God's truth? What do we go to the wall for? What are we willing to fight for? Our opinions, our perspectives, our desires, or God's clear truth? I think Paul is concerned that so often in the church, we are more concerned about our opinions than we are about the truth of God that everybody agrees with. But Paul's not just concerned about about speaking truth. He's concerned about how we do that. And he's continually coming back to love. I read recently about a church that over this past year decided to welcome the members of a mosque down the street that was under construction. They decided to welcome those people who couldn't worship in their church to come to their building and have their prayers. And so the the people from the mosque came down and they used the facility. Now, I have sort of mixed feelings about that. I don't know exactly what it meant for them to say they used our facility. They weren't that specific about it. And I think I'd be uncomfortable if they were using the worship space that's set aside to worship Yahweh. But I think I was even more uncomfortable when I read that as word of this got out and as the pastor began to be asked for interviews and he was even on the Daily Show with John Stewart and all of this publicity and word got around, someone asked him, so what kind of reaction did you get from people? And he said, we received hate mail and death threats from Christians all over the country. When I read that, I thought to myself, I, I think that's impossible. I mean, isn't that impossible? For a Christian to make death threats and send hate mail? I mean, I, I don't know how you can, you can make a claim to be a Christian, but I don't see how you can legitimately be a follower of Jesus and do things that are so antithetical to Jesus. We may want to say, hey, I have a disagreement with that. But the way we go about it is just as important as the opinion we might have related to the issue. I think Paul is saying to us, if we speak the truth without love, I'm not sure we're we're communicating the truth any longer. Because we've come to believe too often that speaking the truth is imperative. Doing it in the spirit of love is negotiable. We couldn't be more wrong. See, the unity of the church can only breathe in the spirit of love. And of course, love never speaks from any motive other than what's best for others. What will help them grow the most in Christ? What will bring about reconciliation in the church? What's going to break down walls and build bridges? Our struggle is that living that way is is hard. And uncovering the spirit of unity and being ready and willing to, to engage in the spirit of loving unity doesn't happen without some amount of pain and struggle and agony and burden because unity only comes when we sacrifice and sacrifice isn't easy. But sacrifice is the only path to genuine maturity.
to Christ-like unity. And that kind of thing can only take place in the context of community, which most of the time is a struggle to get anywhere close to what we hope it might be. I've spent a lot of time pondering and lamenting the difficulties and burdens and struggles that we have with each other in the church. You know, you kind of expect the church to be better than it sometimes is. And that's not just our church. You can talk about any church and you can find that. And I think God wants us to be far better than we are. But something in our minds wants to believe that if God would just come down and make us perfect, then the church would be exactly what he wants us to be. Then maturity would just spring up all over the place. But I've been wondering about that and it strikes me that maybe the reason God doesn't do that is because what if we're only able to develop the character of Christ and fully experience the measure of all that God has for us by being connected to people who are not perfect? Who don't always treat us the way we want to be treated. Who hurt us and disappoint us and burden us and grieve us and frustrate us. What if the only way to learn patience is to be around people who make us learn patience? What if the only way to learn gentleness is to be around people who need us to be gentle? You can only learn some of these things in the context of other people. And without other people, there is really no need or ability to learn patience or humility or gentleness. You can't learn those things in isolation. You have to be connected to people. And I think after some extended thought that I think I, think I might change the title of today's sermon from We Are Family, Whether We Like It or Not, to We Are Family and What an Amazing Gift of God It Is. Paul reminds us that our relationships with each other, our commitment to unity with each other, in the end, really isn't about us. It's about Christ. It's about Christ who loves us, who calls us, who promises to do more than we could dream or imagine in us and for us. And I think that we need to understand that we're only really going to find the kind of family unity that Paul is talking about when we turn our eyes away from us and we're focusing our attention on Christ. Christ who gave us gifts is the one who has all the power. But his power is through his willingness to die. His power is through his willingness to become incarnate and to live with, in humility on this earth and to go to the grave for us. Paul reveals in verses 8 to 10 that this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. I had a professor in seminary that said when you come across a, a biblical passage and there's something in there that seems out of place... That's probably the key element to understanding the passage. And I think that might be what's going on here. 
Because it sort of seems out of place for Paul to, to digress with this, this little poem about Jesus ascending and descending. But I think he's trying to help us understand that Christ has ascended into glory and Christ is in control of the church. He is head of the church. He rules the church. It's his church, not ours. But how does Christ come to that place of ultimate authority? By coming to this earth and humbling himself in the will of the Father and going to the cross and being put in the grave. And God is calling us to trust the church and our view of the church and our connections in the church to this one who loves the church so much that he gave himself his whole life to redeem the church and to bring us together in unity and maturity through his grace. God has given us no clearer image of his design for the church than this table. At this table, we're all equal. We all come to this table only because of God's grace. At this table, our, our selfishness is smashed to pieces. At this table, our self-centeredness is washed away in the blood of Christ. This table exists only because the incarnate Son of God humbled himself in obedience to the Father and went to the cross. Not because he needed redemption, but because we do. And this table invites us as individuals and as the body of of Christ to come and to engage in his life anew and in his death anew so that we might know we are loved and in knowing that love can be free to give love away and to sacrifice and to connect ourselves through the grace of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy and the humility and the love of Christ. Father, we pray that as we prepare to gather around this table, that you will pour out your blessing upon the bread and the cup. As we eat and drink, our souls will be stirred anew of your love for us that we might break down one bit of the wall. We might build a little more of the bridge so that we would become the people of God together that you have created us to be. Father, we ask that your mercy would be poured out upon us and on this bread and this cup that the sacrifice of Christ might speak deeply into our souls and feed us and transform us to life in Christ. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. 
And he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. But this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. And again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intention. means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup and eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisle. The altar's open. If you'd like to stay and pray, you're welcome to do so. If coming to the front is difficult for you, we do have trays of bread and cups and we would be happy to serve you in the row. Just let the usher know as your row is released. I like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ and with the desire in your heart to live in fellowship with the body of Christ... And you're invited to come and to receive these gifts from the loving and gracious hand of our Heavenly Father.
invite you to stand and sing together hymn number 472, Christ from whom all blessings flow. the benediction. May you, being rooted and established in love, have power together with all God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Amen.